all of us have some limited view of our company. And before you think, well, sure, in a 30,000 person company, that makes sense. I have been companies as small as 10, 15 people. And when I ask them, what does this company do? I will get different answers. It is remarkable how people sitting effectively in the same room see different things. But we're all going to be exposed to different information by having that large internal network. You can gain access to information and get different perspectives that will help you see opportunities and mitigate risks. Welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast, hosted by Andy Lapata, the show where Andy and his guests explore the many ways in which relationships impact business decisions, make leaders' jobs easier, and help you to progress your career. Hello, and welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast. I'm Andy Lapata. Thank you very much for joining me. We're going for the practical stuff today. Uh, and really focus in on how professional relationships can support you across the course of your career, and most importantly, in progressing that career for you. My guest is a cybersecurity expert, but we're not really going to be talking about that. He's an instructor at MIT. We may not be talking about that. We might talk about him being a ballroom dancing champion. Let's see how the conversation goes. Most pertinent, pertinently, let me I don't know if even if I said that correctly, but pertinently, most pertinently, he as an American, he just accused me of not being able to speak proper English. And I feel I've just proved him right. Most pertinently, it's not a word I say very often, and I'm never saying it again. He is the author of the career toolkit. Uh, so with that in mind, the book looks across the whole range of uh strategies and tactics and techniques you need to put into place to uh, to drive your career forward in the direction that you plan the focus i want to to look at today is how relationships play a key role in a successful career so to help me look at that and also correct my english and help me with my pronunciation uh, welcome mark hirschberg thanks for having me on the show i am excited to share some tips with your audience Thank you, Mark. And how was how would you pronounce pertinent? Relevant. <laughs> Good answer. I think I got it right that time, and probably every time. It just sounded wrong in my head. And but you have what, the British accent, so it all sounds yeah, good. Absolutely, yes. Um, so I have to make sure as much of my audience is American as possible because you guys appreciate me. Uh, okay, so let's let's get into to, to the crux of the matter. As I said, I'm going to go practical with this today. Um, I, I think that this is of value to a lot of people who listen to this show. Um, so I want to make the most of it. So I want to start uh, by looking separately uh, at the types of relationships that we can build and how important they are in developing that career as a leader. Uh, so let's start with the what I would call your internal relationships, the relationships you build with your colleagues with people more senior to you, with people in your uh, reporting line, whoever it might be, but others within your organization. Where are the key ones and why are they so important? I would say the key ones are all of them. <laughs> now, here's why. I know it feels like a cop-out. So many people focus on their networking externally. Well, I need to meet people at other companies because one day I'll need a new job and I'll need them to open some doors for me. Why would I need access to my own company? I have a job here. But of course, those internal relationships are so critical for a myriad of reasons. 
And depending on the reason, different people can be helpful. Certainly within larger organizations, there are job opportunities there and knowing the right people can get you in or can get you to the top of the line, or I should say queue, given where you're located, because that relationship is going to just connect you right to the hiring manager. But beyond that, it can also get you access to certain projects or certain resources. Perhaps there's a big project and you're trying to get people to help you out. The legal team is really busy doing some important project, but you need some help on yours. Well, if you have that personal relationship, you can go ask the friend for a favor and say, look, can you just find some hours for someone on your team to come help me out? So it can provide you access to resources. It can also provide you access to information. And this is why everyone is valuable in some way. All of us have some limited view of our company. And before you think, well, sure, in a 30,000-person company, that makes sense. I have been companies as small as 10, 15 people. And when I ask them, what does this company do? I will get different answers. It is remarkable how people sitting effectively in the same room see different things. But we're all going to be exposed to different information. By having that large internal network, you can gain access to information and get different perspectives that will help you see opportunities and mitigate risks. Uh, You're you're singing my tune. Uh, I can definitely say that. Uh, So much I want to pick up from there. Just that, that point about you know, small businesses where people are giving you a different answer. I always say I see more competition than collaboration in businesses. And and, and amazingly, that even happens in, in some of the smallest uh, SME businesses. Uh, and very much you get a silo mentality. Uh, people are driven by uh, by motivating factors other than the success of the business as a whole. Uh, and I think you see that a lot. And in line with that, you talked about having a friend who can lend you a member of their team or give you the the insights that you need. Something that's come up a lot recently, I've I've been talking about it for years, but it's very interesting. It's come up in about three or four conversations in the the last week or so, is is someone said to me recently, "If if I need help from a colleague, won't they just help me? Because we work for the same business. And uh, my response was, yes, you would hope so, wouldn't you? (laughs) But it doesn't quite work like that. And and something that I've always talked about or often talked about is the fact that everyone's got their own challenges. Everyone is is deadline-driven, time-poor, struggling to to work out their priorities and get things done. So when you turn around to ostensibly a colleague someone who works in the same organization and say, would you help me? Unless they are told to help you or by helping you, they help achieve their own objectives, then what is motivating them to do so? And I would argue that's the the professional relationship you have. If they like you and trust you and they've got a strong rapport with you, they'll help you irrespective of the impact on them. If, If they don't, you're going to struggle. Would that be what you've seen as well? Absolutely. And you've hit upon a subtle but important point because I hear people say, well, I don't want to be a manager. I don't want to be a leader. I want to be an individual contributor. And that's fine. And we need those people and they add tremendous value. But you still need management skills. 
Because in that exact example, you might be my peer and I never want to manage you, but I need you to do something for me. And I have to figure out how to motivate you. Now that could be through a personal relationship, that could be through alignment to your goals, but I have to employ management techniques even if I say I only want to be an individual contributor. That's a great example of why skills, networking is one of them, but many of these other skills, including leadership and management, they really are universal, even to the most junior members on our team. Let's pick up on that point of, uh, you know, aligning what you want to achieve with their agenda. Uh, I think that this is uh, so important and Everyone listening to this podcast will get it. And I say that because regular listeners to the podcast, by the fact, and actually anyone, by the fact you're tuning into this, you probably get this to a degree anyway. But I think if you turn around to anyone in work and say, if you align what you want to do with the objectives of the person you need the help from, they're more likely to help you. That makes sense. But yet, how many people actually practice that? Uh, rather than just going and saying, I need you to do this. So how can we actually get people to take what is so basic and such common sense and apply it? Well, having these relationships helps because if you have a relationship someone with someone and you get to know that person, you will understand his or her motivations better. And spending time with someone, here's the important point. We all have different motivations. Now, this is tricky. The motivations for an individual might be financial. I'm just here to make lots of money. It might be status or promotion. It might be the mission of the company. For some people, their job is a way to get away from their home or other aspects. For some, maybe the job is just about getting enough money to support their hobby. So there's lots of different reasons why we might engage. And it's important to understand this. Now, one of the restrictions that we have is HR often says, you have to use the same motivational tools on everyone. So for example, if I have two members of my team and I know the guy needs money because he just had twins and things are really financially tight, I go, okay, you're going to get a bonus. And if there's a woman on my team and I say, oh, I know you have a sick parent and you really need time to go spend with her, you're going to get more time off. Well, then HR, at least in the US, and I suspect in the UK and many other places, can say, wait a second, you are treating men and women differently. That's discrimination. There's a lawsuit. There's a problem. And it's very understandable why they're saying, nope, you, you can't individualize your motivations. But on the other hand, we need to. So we have to find this tricky balance. But understanding someone's motivation, why they should engage on this project, why they should work harder. It really, you do have to align individually whether or not you can give everyone the same carrot. And sometimes that can be delivered informally rather than formally. Uh, and, um, and sometimes it's as simple as just listening to someone and, and acknowledging and not trying to jump in, uh, but, but making them feel that you care for them and, and in a sincere way, I would, I would stress. Not just feel it, but know it. I'll give you an example of that. When I have my team work long hours, I will often, in addition to any bonus or any time off, send them gift baskets. Just a little thank you basket. It doesn't cost much. We're talking anywhere from $70 to $150 US. That's a small cost for your business, especially when they've just worked hard for the past month or so. 
Now I can send them all the same gift basket, but by customizing a little, you're showing that you care about the person. So for example, the person who was a non-drinking vegan, very important, I don't send him the same prosciutto and wine gift basket I might send to someone else. To someone who has a spouse, it's important when I send this gift basket, I don't just say, hey, thank you for your work. I send it to this person and his spouse and say thank you to both because the spouse also paid a price by not having her husband around. So it's recognizing these little subtle things that shows I care about you. But of course, that comes back to they're not just my employees and, oh, you, you're employee number three, and this is what you do. It's getting to know the people on my team and what matters to them. Completely. I do the same um, for people, for example, who give me a referral or for clients. And I, I, I will very much try and find out what their preferred drink is. Do they like chocolate? You know, what, whatever it might be. I sent someone a tree once because uh, I asked a friend who'd had dinner with her recently, what was she talking about? What's she interested in? She said, she's thinking of planting trees. So she got home and found a tree on her doorstep, not, not fully grown. That was for her to do. Uh, but it, it's the little touches like that that make a difference. I'm going to... I, I, I think all of this is valuable, all of this is relevant, but I think we're slightly off track of the core um, topic of the interview. So I'm going to bring us back on track, and that is we've been talking about how those relationships will help you in your role, in what you're trying to do in your job, what you're trying to achieve as a leader. I want us to focus in on your career progression because that's why you're on, on the Connected Leadership Podcast because of your expertise in terms of career growth. So as I say, everything you've talked about is perfectly relevant to that, but let's laser focus in. So to do that, one of the pieces of research that I share uh, when I'm talking about the impact of professional relationships on your career, which you may well be aware of uh, because it's very famous, is Harvey Coleman's pie uh, research, which was late uh, 20th century, uh, I think about 95. It was in a book that Coleman wrote. Um, where he looked at the factors that went behind a promotion. And it's known as Pi because the three factors were performance, image, and exposure. And everyone is naturally inclined to think that performance is the key factor that will determine a promotion. Uh, you know, if you do a good job, you'll get rewarded for it. Uh, but what Coleman found was that performance, uh, was he attributed 10% of promotions to performance. Image, was 30%, exposure was 60%. So in other words, you can do a good job, but if nobody knows what the job you do is and the right people aren't aware of it, you're not going to get a promotion. So I share that very often, and it does change people's understanding and perception of that role of performance versus networks. It's not to say don't do a good job, because trust me, if you do a bad one, your exposure will be very high for that. Um, but it's about managing how that's perceived if you want to progress in an organization. So how does that come to play in, turn, in, in, in the work that you've experienced and the research that you've done? Great question. I don't know if I agree with those factors, but certainly I don't agree with the weighting of those factors, but certainly the factors themselves are relevant. My friend Chris Resto always said, perception is reality. And we have to recognize that some people are very much 
I'm just going to do a good job and let the results speak for myself. Other people are better at that self-promotion, at making sure, oh, hey, did you hear about this project? Did you hear about what we accomplished? And depending on the nature of your organization and the nature of your boss or whoever is on the promotion committee, some of those factors may be more or less important. And it's important to understand this and to recognize there's not a universal, well, I just do a good job, but that we need to focus on what is specific to my job, my career path, my company, and what do I need to hit that next step? Dory Clark has, who's a mutual friend of ours, I know, has a wonderful piece of advice where she says, go to the people around you, go to your coworkers and ask for what are three tips, excuse me, what are three adjectives that you would use to describe me? And when you collect all those adjectives, you look for patterns and that tells you how people perceive you. Very important is to recognize is how I am perceived relevant for that job I hope to get? Because often we're good at our current job. We might be perceived well for it, but if we need to be perceived in a different way. So for example, I work in technology. And if you are seen as a great technical person, you solve all these great technical problems. You're thinking, oh, that, that's good. I'm an architect. That's how I should be perceived. But if you want to become a manager, Yes, it helps to have that, but you need to be perceived as more of a people person. If they're not seeing that in you, that's not going to help you get the next job. So understand how you are perceived, get that feedback through Dory Clark's method, and then make sure that aligns to your goal, to your next step. And if it doesn't, then you have to proactively change your image, change your exposure so that you can align and get that promotion. And Dory is a previous guest, of course, on the Connected Leadership podcast. And, and I, I, I've run a similar exercise for a number of years or challenged my, my uh, uh, delegates to do so, uh, where you do go out and say to people, what, you know, what would you say about me? And there's a series of questions you ask to get that perception. I, I, I totally believe that perception is reality and, and it's hard for a lot of people to accept. And what you've shared there aligns with what we were saying earlier about the importance of what you're trying to achieve. I'm using the same word twice, aligning with the objectives of the people whose help you need. We were talking about that a little bit earlier. So it's, it's no good doing a good job in one space. So let's say you're an expert on cyber, but the role you're aiming for is looking for someone who is uh, a brilliant marketer. You may well have those skills as well, but the perception of the skills needed for cyber, a cyber role, cybersecurity role, could be completely different. They may well indeed, they might look for a people person and they may perceive people in a technology role as introverts, geeks, whatever term you want to use, it, and may not see those, they may not assume those people's skills. You may have them, but it's up to you to make sure that they're communicated effectively. Very true. And I realized I had to do that in my career. Early on during an interview, I was chatting with some people and I was dressed in a suit. And it's a, we're in the break room. A woman comes in and she's hearing us speak. And after hearing us talk about corporate culture for 10 minutes, she looks at me and says, so I'm curious, are you just a business guy or do you have any technical skills? And I said, oh, well, actually, I have three degrees from MIT. Two of them are in computer science. She said, oh, 
And that was it. That ended the conversation. I wasn't trying to end it, but I realized at that moment, I didn't have to prove my technical skills. Those MIT degrees just told everyone, this guy is technical. But throughout my career, people have not believed that I had the people skills because they heard MIT, they saw engineer, they saw CTO. And just those words alone put in that preconceived notion. So I had to very proactively work to change my perception in other areas because it didn't align to the goals that I wanted. And that was everything from what I read to language I used to even how I dressed because I no longer had to prove myself technically, but I had to prove myself. I had to change that perception, that image in other aspects. Uh, absolutely. So let, let, let's dig deeper into this because a lot of people will be very uncomfortable with broadcasting their qualities. Let's use the term bragging. So if you don't talk highly about yourself, and if you don't share your qualities, why would other people, is what I always say. How can you encourage people who are reticent and, and expect others to recognize those qualities in them? How do you encourage them to, to take responsibility for their own, and I'm going to use an awful phrase, their own self-promotion? What I've learned from years in tech is that a good product with bad marketing always loses out to a bad product with good marketing. We've seen this time and time again. History is layered with great products that just went nowhere, and we wind up with the, the mediocre ones. There is a difference between being overly self-promotional and say, oh, did you hear about this? Did you hear about this? Hey, I want to make sure you heard about this. I'm going to send six emails so everyone knows exactly what I achieved versus at the right time and place bringing this up. Think about salespeople you have encountered. There are the pushy salespeople you hate, and they're just always going for that hard sale, the hard close, driving right to the end. And then you've probably met some salespeople who said, wow, I didn't even realize she was selling me, and yet somehow she talked me into this, and I'm, I'm happy with it, because she took a more subtle approach. She recognized at what moment she should bring forth a certain benefit or lead you in a direction. Other moments just step back and let you get there. And that's what you need to do. You need to be not that pushy salesperson. That's, the, that's that negative image we have, but that more gentle one. And so recognize you are selling yourself. So be that gentle salesperson at certain appropriate moments and appropriate ways you can gently nudge. We also need to remember, again, everyone is different. There might be some busy boss where you have to say, hey, hold on, focus, I did something great. Okay, thank you for your attention. There might be others who you just need to mention it casually once and she's going to get and remember it because she's not running in 17 different directions. So recognize how you even sell, just like motivation, it's going to be different for each person and use the right approach with the right person, but recognize that you are a good product. Don't lose out because of bad marketing. We hope that you're taking away some valuable lessons from this edition of the Connected Leadership Podcast. If you would like support in developing, nurturing, and leveraging strong relationships to support you in your role, please visit andylapata.com forward slash mentoring. Do you see gender or cultural differences in people's willingness to self-promote? 
I suspect there are. I've looked more at that in terms of other aspects like leadership and negotiation. I haven't looked at in terms of self-promotion, but I can imagine, for example, certain cultures, I'm thinking of certain cultures in Asia in particular, you're not supposed to stand out. You're not supposed to brag. And if you do, that's seen as a negative. And you might even, if you are working, if you're a UK citizen, an American citizen working for such a company, you have to recognize you might have to adjust your tactics. You can't say, hey, I want to let you know what a great win I had. Now, you might be able to say, I want to talk about what a great win the team had. And you might not even say, hey, everyone, your attention, please, for the win. You might even need to introduce it more subtly. I'm not a complete expert on that, but we do need to adjust our style and approach for the corporate culture that we're in. And that could even derive from some of the country culture. A lot of the the conversation we've had so far is focused on a particular skill. And, and I'd like to uh, look more specifically at that skill set. And that skill is the skill of listening to other people. We've talked about aligning yourselves to their goals. You, you talked about the difference between the two salespeople. And I would argue that the difference between the two salespeople is one sells at you the other engages you in conversation to the point where you buy without even realizing you're doing it because they've listened to you, to, you know, knowing when to nudge and so forth. Uh, in the research you've done and the work you've done and in your own experience, what makes the, the, the best listeners stand apart? What is it that they do that really helps them to make the most of their ears rather than their mouth? The best advice I ever heard on listening, when you're in a conversation, are you listening to the other person or are you waiting to speak? Because so many of us say, okay, yeah, yeah, I, I know what you're going to say, right? Internally, that monologue is like, yeah, okay, okay, get to your point, get to your point, because here's my counterpoint. And you're just waiting, you're saying, okay, what am I going to say? How am I going to respond to that? And you're not focusing on what is being said. And so just paying attention, if it helps, there are a few things you can do. So one, and this I learned from going on a whole bunch of boring dates. And I've learned on these dates where I feel like, well, I'm stuck here. We're five minutes in. This date is terrible, but I can't leave yet. So my philosophy is everyone has something to teach me, and I have to learn what that is. Now, even in a five-minute conversation with a coworker you know, think there is something important here. There's something I'm going to get from this conversation. I don't know what it is yet. And my job is to discover it. And that's going to help you really focus. You're looking for that needle in the haystack. Because when you're looking for that needle, you are very focused on that haystack. You're not thinking about what else is happening on the farm. You're focused on the haystack. So you can use that technique. You can also ask yourself, why? What is the meta? When this person is saying this, what is this person saying? And then what's the behind the scenes? Why is he saying this now? Why is he saying it this way? But you have to understand what exactly is being said down to the tones, the body language, the facial expressions, the words to get to that why. And so those two techniques can help you focus on what is being said and not simply what you want to say back. I, I, I do love that technique. And I've had some interesting dates as well that that would have worked really well with. 
I did once have a date that was 10 minutes and I would challenge you to find a needle in that haystack, but that's a story for a completely different podcast on different types of relationships before I go any further and dig a deeper hole. So we spent a lot of time talking about the internal relationships, which, which, you know, is very key uh, to what we're trying to achieve today. What about external relationships? You said that, you know, most people, when they think of building their networks, they think externally. I think that's particularly true of people in a sales role. But actually, uh, I think everyone needs to be building their their external networks uh, for, for many different reasons. But what's your, your take on that? Uh, and how do people, particularly who are not in a sales role, how should they approach that? You absolutely need to build those connections. The way I think about my network, I think of it like my cell phone. Now, a phone 20 years ago was just a phone that only made phone calls. Today, of course, the phone is the internet in our pockets. And we think about that as an extension of ourselves. Technologists talk about this. The phone is an extension of who we are. I don't need to memorize certain facts. I don't need certain knowledge because it's there. I remember as a kid, I'd have to print out directions to where I'm going. I don't need to do that anymore because the directions are at my fingertips always in my pocket. When you build this network, your network, yes, they can find you jobs, but they can also get you information or help you solve other problems. And your network is in your pocket because they are accessible from your phone. Whether you're doing a phone call, an email, using a tool like LinkedIn, your network is always accessible to you. So I have this great problem-solving tool, this extension of myself that I can bring to bear on any problem I have. But to do that, of course, you want a more diverse network. If you, I'll use a different analogy. If you think of that Swiss army knife in your pocket, the bigger your network, the more tools in your Swiss army knife and the more problems you can solve, the more things you can do. So you want to create a very large and diverse network. So so I, I mentioned the, the scenario where if you're in a sales role, that's natural for you. You're going to be engaging externally a lot. You're not the only person uh, in the organization who's going to be um, uh, building those relationships outside the organization, but it's the one where it's most natural to think of networking in that sense. But what about if you're in a technical role? And obviously, this is very much your background. Uh, you're in an internal role. You're in a technical role. It's not your job to talk to people outside the outside of the organization, but yet you want that mobile phone full of the resource that you need to progress your career. How do you uh, begin to do that? I would argue it is your job. And here's why. Salespeople, we think, well, it's your job because the nature of your job is to go and find people and say, please buy my product. If you are a technical person or a marketer or an accountant or anything else, your job is to solve certain problems. Maybe it's a technical problem. Maybe it's a finance problem. Well, how do you solve these problems? You use certain knowledge you have, but all of us have limitations to our knowledge. And in technology in particular, there are technologies out today that I have no idea about because they just came out two years ago. And it's important that I be on top of them so I can use those tools to solve my problems. Or just so when my boss says, hey, have you heard about this? It's better when I say, why, yes, yeah. I have. Yeah. 
and here's why it's relevant or not instead of, um, okay, let me go figure that out. Well, how do I learn about this? My network helps keep me informed because your network is not just about finding jobs. It's about solving problems, but also about sharing information. And so I constantly go to my network to learn about new things. In fact, when I realized I was doing the book, I didn't intend to write the book. I thought I was writing up notes for this class I've been teaching at MIT for the past 20 years. And then I realized, oh, you know what? I think this is going to be a book. I have no idea how to write a book. The first person I reached out to was my friend, Dory Clark. And I said, Dory, I think I'm writing a book. You've written business books. Can I take you out to dinner and get some advice? And we went out and she gave me wonderful advice. My network helped me solve the problem of how do I write this book and get it out there? So our network can help us on all these problems, but you have to build it, not for the purpose of selling, but for the purpose of having someone you can reach out to when you have a question, when you have a problem. And that is true for all of us in all of our jobs. You talked about being in the position where when your boss says, have you heard of this? You can reply, yes, I have. In fact, it's even better if you're the person the boss hears it from in the first place. Um, I have a model that that I work through with, with clients that I call the relationship matrix. And the relationship matrix says in anything you're trying to achieve, there are various stakeholder groups that can support you, various groups of people who can support you. And within any of those groups, there are four types of support uh, that you could seek. And, and, and they all begin with I. Um, but one of the core ones, and I think it's possibly the most important, uh, or certainly up there, is information, insight, and ideas. And I think it's highly uh, underestimated. Uh, so you've mentioned that a few times, and I'm very pleased because it, it's a message that I'm trying to uh, get across time and time and time again. Okay, so everyone needs to be building those those external relationships, and we understand the importance of doing so. If you're not naturally being brought into uh, the orbit of other people outside the organization, how would you go around building that network? Would it be through formal events? Would it be through uh, friends and family? Or how else uh, would you approach it? It's all of the above. You can meet people through existing people. You can meet people by going to formal events. You can meet people by joining things in your profession. You can meet people socially. You can meet people by saying, I want to target this person, figure out how I'm going to reach it. Now, let me be more specific. I just said things in general terms. I have met people through events I've joined, the New York CTO Club, Renaissance Weekend. I meet wonderful people through these events, and they become friends. They become part of my network. I've met people through professional groups and organizations. One type of event I don't go to, I never go to pure networking events. Something where the only value is come here and network. No, I, I find those are low value. Now I will go to an event, here's a talk on a topic. So I wanna learn that and I will meet people there and we'll network and we'll build relationships. But I never go because it is just about networking. I will host my own events. I live in a New York City one-bedroom apartment, but I used to have, pre-pandemic, a lot of social gatherings, ranging from formal parties to small game nights to dinner parties. 
and I invite people I know and they bring friends and I meet new people. And it's very easy to host events. In fact, I started doing this with my friend, Olivia Fox Caban, who wrote the book, The Charisma Myth, which is also a great book on meeting people and building relationships. She mentions if you are part of a organization, the two best committees to be on are the membership committees and the award committees. Because when you're on those, you're naturally reaching out to other people to invite them to be members or to, oh, welcome, I just want to reach out, how are you doing? Or to offer someone an award or invite, you're on the committee inviting people to speak. So some groups within your organization might allow you to engage with others. Hosting a podcast, right? You meet lots of people as a guest. I've met lots of people. And we need to recognize networking opportunities are all around us. I have built relationships from interviews as both a candidate and hiring manager. Even when that job didn't work out, I said, this is someone interesting. I want to build a relationship with that person. So you can find opportunities once you've just bumped into someone, you have the opportunity to build that relationship. When you change your mindset to all around me are people with whom I can build relationships, you'll see opportunities everywhere. If you think, well, I can only meet people at this formal event, you're going to have a much more limited scope of who you can meet and how your network can expand. Can I add uh, one to your list that you made me think of as well? And that's, you mentioned being on a committee for awards. I found that I've built some very interesting uh, relationships through being a judge on awards. Uh, and, and that can be very powerful, particularly where it's a judge where uh, the finalists come and present to the judging panel uh, because they will tend to reach out to you afterwards uh, because of the perceived credibility. Well, let's not call it perceived, because of the credibility of being on the judging panel. Um, so that's another great way I've built some fantastic relationships uh, with, you know, by the nature of it, by being awards finalists, by people who have got something to offer in the relationship in terms of people I can learn from, people who can inspire me, people who are doing well in what they do, uh, which is who you want to be surrounded by, isn't it? That that sort of throws up another question, um, which is this, this old adage about you are the sum of the five people you spend the most of your time with. How important is it to manage or to look at who you are building relationships with and what they bring to your career uh, and, and your objectives. So I, a conversation recently, I can't remember if it was on the podcast or elsewhere, but but um, someone was saying that, you. in fact, I think it was Luca Signoretti on this podcast. Uh, Luca was saying that you need to ensure that you've always got at least two or three people who are in the position you want to uh, aspire to or you are aspiring to in your network people who have trod the boards before you have you know how important is that from your perspective i would say even more broadly it's important to have a diversity of perspectives to the five person five people nearest you if i was surrounded by just five people who are all cybersecurity experts like me that's great. And we're going to be deep in that area and we can have some really interesting talks and I'll probably be really tuned in to what's happening in the cybersecurity world. I'm going to have blinders on to everything else. And I won't see opportunities with the book or opportunities in other industries. 
And that might limit my perspective. And it could be okay if you say, I never want to get out of this narrow perspective. I'm quite happy to do this. Then you want to be focused. And for someone who says, I am a deep expert and just want to always be that expert in the area, that might be okay. For myself, for most people who want to be executives, you have to have a certain degree of breadth. And getting those different perspectives is helpful. Having more senior people who have tread that path before you, they can bring a unique perspective that someone who has not gone down that path can. I'm going to go a step further and argue you need to be even more diverse. The example I like to give, when I was at MIT, I joined a fraternity. And in that fraternity, we'd have a class of about 10 people. At MIT, you'd live in the fraternity house all four years. I'll just note for the record, MIT fraternities are very different than your standard U.S. college fraternities. So during my four years there, I lived with about 70 people, three classes above me, three below, and my class. 70 people I got to know very well. We're all in each other's networks. Now, here's the thing. We have a high degree of correlation. We know a lot of the same people, not just of 70, but other alumni older and younger than us. I also have a high correlation to MIT as a whole. I know lots of people from there. High correlation to engineers in general. If I don't know an engineer who knows this, I could probably find that person within a single call. But I have a low correlation to other areas. One of my friends is a minister. Now, I know very few ministers. In fact, he might be the only minister I know. I am probably one of the few engineers he knows. Now, you might at first say, well, look, what's a minister going to do to help you? And what are you going to do to help a minister? Maybe nothing. Maybe how we'll help each other has nothing to do with our professions. It might be someone's kid is learning about something and one of us can help in the other way, or some of us, one of us knows someone who can help us. But here's the thing that we bring to each other's networks. If I do need to meet a clergy person, whether it's a minister, whether it's a rabbi, whether it doesn't even have to be his religion, I'll bet he knows a bunch because in divinity school, he met a bunch of people. He's probably done exchanges with other groups. He has this great wide network of clergy, which I don't. I have this amazing network of engineers and not just computer programmers, of aeronautical engineers and chemical engineers. He doesn't have that. So by having this almost really random connection, this low correlation connection, we bring a lot of diversity to each other's networks. And that allows us to get very different perspectives when we need that. So even if you say, I want to be concentrated in a certain area, you still want to pull in a little bit of diversity from other people way outside your current perspective, because they're going to add a lot of potential value to your network. Regular listeners to the podcast would know that this is something that I bang on about quite a lot. Uh, I'm always recommending Matthew Syed's book, Rebel Ideas, which is about cognitive diversity and the importance of it. It's something that I've been talking about for many years. If you look at um, Facebook's social graph, uh, which is the, 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 the map of our connections on which Facebook is planned, uh, it, it looks very much like what you have been illustrating, those uh, weak ties, to use Mark Granovetter's term, where you're, you can jump from tightly bound networks into the next tightly bound network because you're the one with the connection across. Now, that's not how necessarily Granovetter used the theory, but that's what he was talking about. By uh, And 
I've I've talked about Gradovetter's theory of weak ties on the podcast before, but just Google it. You'll find plenty of information if you haven't seen it before. And it's very relevant for our to our conversation today. Um, but it, it is about that ability to open up communities that you're not tied into. And in terms of career development, which is what that theory focuses on, um, finding access to roles that you didn't know existed because someone who's in a different community knows people you don't. Um, so absolutely, that diversity point is is absolutely key. Uh, now, I have to give you credit, uh, Mark, because uh, what what our listeners don't uh, I, I don't often open the curtain to reveal what goes on beforehand, but I always share a list of questions uh, that suggest where I would like to go. But I tend to say we might not follow that path. We probably only uh, I've probably only asked you the two most basic questions um, that were in the original list. But we've we, we've di- we've dived deeper into those areas uh, and left various areas around, particularly around navigating the more. Uh, difficult areas of of professional relationships in the workplace that can get in the way of career development. Uh, We've left those untouched at the moment. We have a a podcast coming up with two former senior police officers, including an anti-terrorism officer and a a chief superintendent, where we're going to look at managing conflict. Uh, We've got uh, an interview coming up with um, a a lead um, someone who who introduced one of the most successful new business ideas in the in the U.S. Air Force um, about navigating the politics of bureaucracy. So we are going to be covering this topic in the coming weeks in great depth. But just to finish off, let me have your your sweetest nuggets, your headlines on how you navigate the politics of the workforce and come out unscathed. Because I would say that would be the biggest blocker to your opportunities to progress, certainly within an organisation. I cover this briefly in chapter two of my book, and that section is heavily influenced by a book I highly recommend, Survival of the Savvy by Rick Brandon and Marty Seldman. And really, if corporate politics are a challenge, that is the book to get. The basic premise is that we are all on a political spectrum. Some of us are less political, just let my work stand for itself. Some are more political, that marketing ourselves. And of course, you can be too far on either end of the spectrum. But the key idea is to recognize we all have different approaches. Just like regular politics, it's not necessarily bad, but when taken to the extreme and used only for self-interest and really pushing other people out of the way, that's where it gets bad and negative. Once you understand that we're all on the spectrum and recognize that how you might sit on the spectrum is different than how I sit there, that's what's going to let me better engage with you and not just see you as, well, you're just a political jerk, but rather, okay, you take a different approach. And now that I understand that, I know how to engage with you. So I really recommend the book, Survival of the Savage. Fantastic. And that's a great trail for our podcast on Thursday, where I'm going to ask you what other books and, and podcasts and so forth you, you recommend. I can't let you go having opened our conversation by mentioning your ballroom dancing, silky smooth skills without asking you to share a little bit about that. So um, tell us what makes you or, or, or what you've achieved in the space of ballroom dancing, how you got involved and uh, where it took you. I started dancing when I was at MIT, 
MIT at the time had probably the largest team and arguably the top ballroom dance team in the United States. This was in the late 90s, early 2000s. I competed all over the United States. I went to the U.S. championships a number of times. I even went to England, I believe, twice to go to a dance festival there and do some competitions. So I got very high up. I think my highest ranking was number three in 19 dance. 19 dance is like the decathlete of the ballroom world where you're doing 19 different dances. Most people do five or maybe 10. I wanted to do it all. Uh, But I also got to the championship level in a couple other categories as well. It was a wonderful time in my life. And the way I got into it, the short version, I was dating a woman. We were doing social ballroom dancing and she decided she wanted to compete. So apparently I had also decided that I wanted to compete but I am so glad she got me into it. And how did she, uh, did, did she stay with you in all those competitions? Uh, or did you leave her behind and dance off into the sunset? We dated and danced for two more years. And then we had a big decision to make in our lives. She had to return to her country or we'd have to make a whole bunch of complicated decisions. I mm. don't think our relationship was at the stage. It needed to be yeah. you know, further. Uh, she's still a good friend of mine, uh, but a wonderful person. I'm always grateful that she got me into competitive ballroom dancing. Fantastic. Well, look, it's been great tangoing with you for the last uh, 45 minutes or so. Uh, I, I th- you know, you're going to uh, uh, stay on the line with me now. And we'll, we'll record our Thursday podcast, which people can pick up in a few days time, or it will be available if you're listening uh, after we publish this. Um, so do check that out. Uh, and, you know, we haven't talked about your role in cybersecurity, which is a bit more than just cybersecurity, isn't it? So I think it'll be quite nice to, to dig into that a little bit and and find what you've been doing to track criminals around the internet uh, in our Thursday podcast. But for the moment, Mark, thank you very much for joining me on the Connected Leadership Podcast. So thank you very much to Mark for joining me. Fascinating uh, conversation. I do try and mix up the episodes a bit and have some that are uh, very practical advice um, driven, which, which is what today is others where it's more the story of someone's career or what, what they've been through. And, and, and we can take lessons from that. Uh, this was very much one of the former. Um, and I think hopefully a very useful resource for you marks clearly uh, someone with a wealth of knowledge. I, I, I threw a lot of questions uh, at him that he wasn't expecting and he handled them very well. Um, so check out the book, uh, and I'm sure there'll be a lot in there. Uh, uh, you know, it covers a, a hell of a lot more than relationships. We really did uh, a laser focus on that. So uh, pick up on that. There's a lot of great advice to help you drive your career forward. And come and hear what Mark has to say about how professional relationships have impacted his career on Thursday on the Connected Leadership Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Connected Leadership Podcast. If you found this valuable, please subscribe, tell your colleagues and friends, share on social media, and post a review on the podcast channel you use to listen to it. And of course, join us again soon for another interesting interview and great Connected Leadership tips.